Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Hebrews. I'd like to start in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, this evening. I'd just like to share with you some bits and pieces of what we witnessed in London in relation to our Christian history, which relates to our Australian history. And that's why it's of great value to me, and I trust it will be of value to you. Here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 1, it reads, This is a summary or the conclusion of what has been spelled out in chapter 11 of different individuals that have gone before and have run their race with patience. And therefore it reads there in chapter 12, verse 1, Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about or surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, referring back to chapter 11. Because of that, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Then go to Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 7. Hebrews chapter 13, verse number 7. It reads, Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow." considering the end of their conversation. Let's bow for prayer for a moment. Oh God, please teach us, encourage us this evening from the lives of those that have gone before us. Help us to run that race that you have set for each one of us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask and pray. Amen. Within these two verses, I'd just like to emphasize just a portion from Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, that little portion, so great a cloud of witnesses. So here in this verse, we are reminded of the many examples, many examples of godly leaders, and we have them spelled out there in chapter 11. And then in chapter 13, verse number 7, we are reminded that we are to follow genuine faith. The context here is in reference to honouring those that are over us, that have spiritual oversight over our lives, and to follow their faith, their genuine faith. So the application from this verse is that we need to follow the faith of godly examples. We need to choose our mentors, in other words. So in chapter 12, verse 1, there are many examples available for us. We are without excuse. And then in chapter 13, verse 7, we are to follow those good examples. So within Bible history, we have countless examples of men and women of God whose faith we can follow we can learn from 
their walk with God. And also beyond strictly Bible history, what we refer to as general church history, we have examples of men and women of God that have walked in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus and have set a wonderful example of what it means to love Christ and to serve him fully. Now, it's important for us to understand that Christianity came to Australia from within the British Empire. That is fact. F-A-C-T. Fact. And it was the influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ in Great Britain that resulted in biblical Christianity coming to Australia. Fact. F-A-C-T. Now one of the centres of biblical Christianity that has spread around the world, including Australia, is the city of London. Amazing history within this city. Wrong button. There we go. Now, while we were in London, we had the privilege of seeing clear evidence of biblical Christianity. And no wonder, no wonder, it's within that city we find the roots of biblical Christianity going around the world. And Australia is no exception. Australia is a beneficiary of that fact. Now, the city of London has a long history dating back to the Roman Empire. And uh, my apologies, I couldn't get a better picture of this, but there on the far right uh, is the original boundary of the city of London under Roman dominion and uh, walled around by a number of main walls and, uh, and the names of those walls still exist today um, uh, in streets and little portions of that old Roman wall can still be seen today. Um, so the city of London has a wonderful history. And within the city of London, that is the heart of the city, I guess the equivalent would be our CBD, you will find many examples of biblical Christianity. Uh, for example, this building here, the Royal Exchange in London, was founded back in the 16, um, 16th century, and it was the seat of commerce. And um, this building has been destroyed twice, and this building that exists today was built in 1840. And it was a hub. Today, it's full of expensive shops. <laughs> but uh, the point I want to make is that the building bears witness of Christian influence because there is a verse, uh, Psalm 24.1, engraved above the eight pillars of this building. 
Psalm 24.1 reads, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and they that dwell therein. And there it is, the word of God over the royal exchange. So uh, you will find the evidence of the effect of the gospel throughout this city that has spread far and wide, including Australia. Just a building. Um, we were down this particular street on this particular day, making our way back to the train station, and there was a statue of John Bunyan on the corner of this building. Uh, and I'm thinking, wow! Um, people tossing to and fro, and I felt like shouting from the rooftop, do you guys realise who this bloke is? And what he has done? This guy wrote the most popular book besides the most widely read Christian book besides the Word of God. And uh, so it's everywhere, everywhere. So I'd just like to share just some key points of Christian history within the city of London. Let's begin with St Paul's Cathedral, worth a visit. It's an Anglican cathedral there in the city of London and it was once upon a time the mother church of the Diocese of London. Now it's Westminster Abbey. Um, so this uh, church, uh, the building uh, buildings, I should say, uh, have gone through four uh, destructions after being destroyed four times through history. This current building, beautiful, beautiful building, has uh, lived through three centuries and, and it's worth visiting for a number of reasons. Beyond its beauty, it's worth visiting because some of the key events that took place surrounding St Paul's Cathedral. Obviously it was called St Paul's Cathedral in dedication to the Apostle Paul. St Paul's Cathedral was the, uh, I guess, the home church of Queen Victoria. Queen Victoria attended this church now, the current royal family, Westminster Abbey, is their church, but this was Queen Victoria's church. And she at one time asked the chaplain there at St Paul's Cathedral, is it possible to be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety? Is it possible? Ask the chaplain there at St Paul's Cathedral. Unfortunately, the chaplain could not give her a clear answer. It's very, very sad. So Queen Victoria wanted to know, so she decided to publish in the court news and ask the question, can a person be absolutely sure in this life of eternal safety. Is it possible? Ask that question in her paper. And an evangelist 
by the name of John Townsend read that and was challenged to write to the Queen. And this evangelist, this nobody, mustered the courage to write to the Queen and share verses conveying the fact that it's possible to be sure of a home in heaven. He quotes in his letter, John 3.16, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And he encouraged his friends to pray for him and to pray for this letter to the Queen. Well, within time, Mr. Townsend received the response. Queen Victoria wrote back to him and said, I now have that assurance of eternal safety. She was converted because of this letter that this man wrote to the Queen. And she went on to be a wonderful Christian Queen. Victoria was the Queen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland from 1837 to 1901. She reigned for 63 years and 216 days to be exact. She reigned during that period of time that was known as the Victorian era. A wonderful period of time in which the gospel went to the regions beyond and God did some wonderful, wonderful works. She was the longest reigning British monarch until Queen Elizabeth II. And it's of interest, as we go back to St Paul's Cathedral, this church was not only her home church and unfortunately Within her home church, she didn't receive the assurance of salvation. It took a courageous evangelist to write to her and share the gospel with her. But she genuinely was converted and she was mindful of God's blessing over her reign. And Queen Victoria determined to celebrate her diamond jubilee at St. Paul's Cathedral. On the 20th of June, which he celebrated on the 20th of, of uh, 22nd of June, pardon me, 1897. And there, uh, before you climb up the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, you have engraved there in the pavement, her Queen Victoria returned thanks to Almighty God for the 60th anniversary of her succession, June 22, 1897. And there it is, right there, for all to see. And there are hundreds, if not thousands, of people that visit St Paul's Cathedral uh, within a given year. And there's another testimony of glory to God there on the pavement before St. Paul's Cathedral. Also, St. Paul's Cathedral uh, was, uh, is significant in that a trial took place on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral back in the 1300s. Here we have one of the landings and doors that lead into the cathedral. And it's here that a significant event took place in the 1300s. A man by the name of John... Wycliffe, Wycliffe, was put on trial on the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral. 
got a little image there of him holding onto his Bible. And at his feet, we have uh, books that he'd written. And John Wycliffe had his trial on the steps of the old St. Paul's Cathedral, London, back in 1377. John Wycliffe was an ex-Roman Catholic who was responsible for the translation of the first English Bible. He completed the New Testament in 1380 and he completed the Old Testament in 1382, two years before he went to be with the Lord. He taught adamantly that men have the right to have the Bible in their own language. And he was willing to endure the wrath of the Roman Catholic authorities for what he believed. John Wycliffe was an amazing man. Now his translations were from a former translation known as the Latin Vulgate, which was not a accurate translation. But the point is that he did translate the Bible in English so that within his translations, people could read the Word of God. And the Catholics so hated him that some 44 years after his death, they dug up his remains, burnt his bones and scattered his ashes. Hated him with a passion. Talk about not being allowed to rest in peace. I'm mindful of Hebrews 11, where it talks about Abel, him being dead, yet speaketh. And there is John Wycliffe. And John Wycliffe was an amazing man. He was not only a very intelligent man and provided the first copy of the English Bible, but uh, John Wycliffe was evangelistic and he understood that he could not evangelize on his own, so he trained men to share the gospel far and wide. He took ser seriously the principles found there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, please. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. John Wycliffe understood this principle, the need to train others. So he trained men who were known as the Lollards, and they went far and wide preaching the gospel, sharing the living word with people, and witnessing to as many people as they could. No wonder the Roman Catholics hated him with a passion. Because he not only was influential, he trained others to do likewise. A wonderful man of God. Who died, by the way, naturally not at the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. That was a miracle in itself. And John Wycliffe was tried there on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral. Another event that took place 
on the grounds of St Paul's Cathedral, you'll find on the grounds of St Paul's Cathedral an open-air pulpit, what was known as the open-air pulpit, on the grounds of this beautiful cathedral. And this open-air pulpit was used to make announcements, public announcements. It was used to uh, give speeches. And it was also used to declare heretics, those that we need to be aware of. Heretics in a, according to the Roman Catholic Church, which was a Bible-believing Christian. <laughs> and this little spot here, known as Paul's Cross, this marks the place of the burning of Bibles by the Roman Catholic Church, where they burnt a pile of Bibles. They burnt William Tyndale's first translation of the Bible, of the New Testament, from the original Greek language. Here at this spot, the Roman Catholic Church burnt as many of Tyndale's Bibles as they can get a hold of. And this is where Tyndale's New Testaments were were burnt, and this is the very spot marked accordingly. So with the invention of the printing press, and the, the Word of God was printed and distributed far and wide. The printing press was invented, what, in the 1400s, from memory? And uh, Tyndale's translation, the 1500s. And uh, so they printed as many copies as they could, and, uh, and therefore, Mr. Tyndale was not a popular man amongst the Catholics. And herein, on the grounds of St. Paul's Cathedral, you will find the very spot that many of uh, his translation from the original Greek text, the New Testament, were burnt. Common people that couldn't read Latin could now read the Word of God in English. And many were converted as, as a result of reading the Word of God. Many were converted from reading Wycliffe's translations. And more so, many were converted in reading Tyndale's translation from the original text. And so our King James Bible, our heritage, our, our, our line comes via the Tyndale translation. The Bible teaches us in Romans 10.17... Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. So even though the Catholic Church were determined to uh, burn as many Bibles as they could, God's word is not bound. <laughs> God's word is not bound. And this man, William Tyndale, made such an imprint upon British history, in fact the world, And would you believe it, on the southern side of the river, the River Thames, or Thames as some call it, I like Thames personally, there's a beautiful garden, a beautiful garden known as the Victoria Embankment Gardens. Beautiful. And here you'll find many statues. Within this garden, 
of different individuals that have made a mark not only on British history, but on world history. And guess what? Who's there? William Tyndale. William Tyndale. Among these statues, you'll find a Bible-believing Christian by the name of William Tyndale. And his reason, the reason for his fame is clearly spelled out there at the foot of that statue in his honour. William Tyndale, the first person to produce an English translation of the Bible from the original Greek text. There at the foot of that statue is this. The Word of God. Psalm 119 verse 105. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the entrance of thy uh, words giveth light. And 1 John 5.11, this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Amen. Wonderful testimony. There it is in a community park. For all to see. For all to read. The word of God. And it's clearly spelled out on the general sign at this park that this man was responsible for providing the English-speaking people a translation of the Word of God from the original Greek text. All of this in the city of London. Well, William Tyndale, he didn't die a natural death. He was burnt uh, for his faith on the 6th of October, 1536. And his last words while he was preparing to enter eternity was, Lord, open the King of England's eyes. That they would see the value of the Word of God and people needing the Word of God. And history tells us that within a year, the Bible was placed in every parish church by the king's command. So God heard this man's last cry. Oh God, open, open the king of England's eyes that he will see the value of the word of God. Well, going back to St. Paul's Cathedral, I'd mentioned that there at that open-air pulpit, announcements were made, speeches were given, Heretics were declared. Martin Luther was declared a heretic on the grounds of St. Paul's Cathedral. He was a committed Catholic priest who in reading the word of God saw clearly that a man is justified by faith alone without works. And as a result, he nailed his 95 objections 95-point thesis on the doors of the main church there in Wittenberg, Germany, on the 31st of October, 1517, spilling out the errors within the Roman Catholic Church. And he was the spark that ignited a fire known as the Protestant Reformation that spread throughout Europe and affected Great Britain. And there on the grounds of St. Paul's Cathedral... Martin Luther was declared a heretic. He was not a heretic, he was a Bible-believing Christian. That read the Bible, he could see that man is not justified by works, but by faith. 
This is one of his famous quotes that ends with, Here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. May God help us to have that spirit of Martin Luther that was willing to stand for truth. His life is a wonderful study. He's quite entertaining. He married a nun. Would you believe it? He understood that he needs to be the husband of one wife, so he decided, I'm going to marry a nun. So he picked a redhead nun, this fiery redhead nun, that he won to Christ and married her. And this uh, couple, uh, part of their ministry was to salvage nuns out of the Catholic Church. They had a special ministry of, of, of rescuing nuns out of the Catholic Church. He was a character. He looks like a stern, boring sort of a character, but he, he had some wit about him, some flavour about him. He was declared a heretic on the grounds of St Paul's Cathedral. You need to visit St Paul's Cathedral when you go to London. And last but not least, you'll also find on the grounds of St Paul's Cathedral uh, this statue of John Wesley. Now, why is he there on the grounds of St Paul's Cathedral? Well, John Wesley was a local. He lived in London. The school that he went to still exists today. Uh, he died in London. Um, he was buried in London. He was converted in London. And with his conversion and through his powerful preaching, the gospel went from London to the regions beyond. The reason why that he is on the grounds of uh, St Paul's Cathedral is that he attended a, what was ref, what's referred to as an Evensong service at St Paul's Cathedral. An Evensong is a church service. It's traditionally held uh, near sunset. And the focus of that service is to sing psalms and biblical songs, hymns. And he... Uh, attended in his search for truth. He attended uh, Evensong at this church. Now, John Wesley, after his conversion, was responsible for the salvation of many, many souls. He was instrumental in bringing revival throughout Great Britain and, and infecting others with the Spirit of God. Uh, and therefore, there are men of God that came to our country, men like Richard Johnson, Samuel Marsden, Samuel Lee, William Cowper. And these men, though they were technically a part of the Church of England, they were referred to as Methodist because they were keen on soul winning and they believed in revival and the power of the Holy Spirit. And these men were connected back to this man of God by the name of John Wesley. He averaged 5,000 miles a year on horseback. He travelled from place to place preaching the word of God. God used him mightily to change the course of a nation that had influence around the world. At the bottom there's a little statue, you'll find um, these words in honour of uh, John Wesley. 
you can't read them there, but basically it reads, by grace ye are saved. By grace ye are saved. John Wesley, 1701 to 1791, father of Methodism, priest, poet, teacher of the faith. See, on the 24th of May, 1738, John Wesley returned from a failed attempt to become a missionary to America, went unwillingly to a church service on Aldergate Street, and there he was converted to Jesus Christ. This street is a famous street because at the end of this street, this is one of those streets that marks one of the boundaries of that wall, that old Roman wall that surrounded the original city of London. At the end of that street, on which John Wesley was converted, there is a museum known as the London Museum. And at the forefront of the London Museum is the salvation testimony of John Wesley. Amazing. The church he was saved is still there on Aldergate Street. And at the end of the street, outside the London Museum, is a tribute to this man of God. Spelled out this man's salvation testimony. For all to see as you walk into the London Museum. As I said, John Wesley was a local. And uh, you can also visit his chapel. And, um, and you can also visit his house and tour his chapel. See some of the original church pews of his original building. Pews that he preached at. Obviously, people sitting on those pews. And, uh, and you can go into his home and they will, you'll get to tour his home and read his notes and where he slept. Wonderful. Inspiring. So the house is there on the, uh, on the right-hand side. To the left is his chapel. And below this statue of John Wesley is his life motto which was which was summed up in the world is my parish and that was his heart cry john wesley had a passion for the whole world he wanted to reach as many people as he could with the gospel of jesus christ and god honored that passion because under the influence of john wesley we have the fruits of men like richard johnson who came to our nation and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. John Wesley is buried there in the grounds of the chapel. And there is his place of rest. And you can sit and meditate there. It's a wonderful spot to visit where John Wesley is buried. Now, across the road from... John Wesley's home and chapel, there is a cemetery. It's not any old cemetery. It's the Bunhill Field Cemetery. And it was a special cemetery, which was a cemetery in which people chose to, that paid to get buried in because they were known as nonconformists, they did not want to identify with the mainline Church of England. 
They were not part of the Church of England. And many of these non-conformist Christians who preferred to be buried in unconsecrated soil, as it was referred to, rather than lie in Anglican-affiliated consecrated soil, like Westminster Abbey, <laughs> they paid to be buried in this cemetery. Men like Isaac Watts. Isaac Watts was a preacher, a hymn writer. He wrote some 750 hymns, of which some we sing to this very day. Hymns like, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Joy to the world. Our God, our help in ages past. He was known as the Godfather of English hymnology. And we still sing many of his hymns today. Isaac Watts is buried in the cemetery. So after you visit John Wesley across the road, you can visit where Isaac Watts is buried. Also Susanna Wesley. I'm not sure why she wasn't allowed to be buried next to her son. Only across the road. Anyway, she was in Bunhill Cemetery. Susanna Wesley, the mother of John and Charles Wesley, born on the 20th of January, 1669. She never preached a sermon. She never published a book. She never founded a church. Yet Susanna Wesley is known as the mother of Methodism. The example of faith and her reverence so infected her children, especially John and Charles Wesley, that they became powerful preachers of the word of God because they had a godly mother named Susanna Wesley. And I've said it before, I'll say it again, the hand that rocks the cradle rocks the world. And you mothers and you mothers-to-be, don't underestimate the power of your witness. This woman had plenty to keep herself busy. Her priority was her children, not building a career for herself, not lots of money, not lots of assets. She wanted her children to fear God and honour God and she was responsible for raising John and Charles Wesley. Wonderful woman of God. She's buried here in the Bunhill Cemetery. Also, John Bunyan is buried in this cemetery. Baptist preacher who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote Pilgrim's Progress while he was in jail, Bedford Jail. What was his crime? Preaching the gospel. That was his crime. And that's his tomb. It's outside the main gates of the main cemetery. You can't actually go in and physically stand next to Susanna Wesley's um, uh, grave site uh, or Isaac Watts. But for some reason, they have Mr. Bunyan's on the outside. He's certainly honoured. And uh, wonderful Christian history within the city of London, even within the cemeteries. Worth visiting. Westminster Abbey also has some Christian uh, emphasis to it. I'm sure most of us saw at least a little of the coronation 
that took place here just the other week. The word Abbey means dwelling place. Westminster's the area, Westminster Abbey, dwelling place. It was originally used as a dwelling place for nuns before it became a Protestant church. It is now the head church of the Church of England and the British monarchy. We all know that. It's still an active church, has services, has programs, and I'll give it to them on the hour. They stop and they have a word of prayer. Throughout their openings, on the hour, some fellow will get up in the pulpit, get everybody's attention, and lead in prayer every hour. So with all the hundreds and thousands of people that go through Westminster Abbey, they will hear a prayer. At least a number of prayers. I guess it's a good way to limiting people's stay. If they stay for more than an hour, they've got to endure another little prayer time. <laughs> um, but I like to think their motive is pure because, as we were told, the reason being the church should be a place of prayer. So they have determined as a church that on the hour they stop, they reflect, and somebody leads those present in prayer. Westminster Abbey is a fascinating place. There are a lot of uh, kings, queens, bishops and scientists and poets buried there. Below that church, even that reprobate by the name of Charles Darwin's buried there. But there were some genuine Christians that were buried, that are buried, still buried, <laughs> there in Westminster Abbey. Um, they weren't so adamant to maintain their separation from the Church of England. Men like Frederick Handel, the author of Handel's Messiah, buried there in Westminster Abbey. William Wilberforce, also buried there. Responsible for the abolition of the slave trade. And David Livingston, the first missionary to Africa, buried there. Westminster Abbey. It's worth visiting, worth visiting. And when you visit, you'll also note a pulpit, a pulpit in honour of William Carey, missionary to India, Bible translator, missionary to India. And this pulpit is still used within the services and programs of the church. It was William Carey who said, Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. He preached a wonderful sermon on the 30th of May, 1792, from Isaiah chapter 54, please. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 54. Isaiah chapter 54, verses 2 and 3. He preached a sermon from this passage of Scripture. And it is believed that this sermon sparked the modern missionary movement. Isaiah 54, verses 2 and 3. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. 
Spare not, lengthen thy cords, strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles and make the desolate cities of the inhabitants. William Carey preached on this text and it had great influence. And as I've said, it's believed that this very sermon was the spark that ignited the modern missionary movement of today, where men went into the regions beyond. See, William Carey was criticised for his desire to uh, be a missionary and preach the gospel in regions beyond. He had Calvinists that would say to him, well, if God wants to save people, he can do it without your help or mine. So William Carey was prepared to be a fool for Christ. And he believed that faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. How will they hear without a preacher? A wonderful man of God. He was influenced by another man of God. A man of God by the name of John Newton. William Carey was influenced by John Newton. John Newton counseled William Carey. William Carey would visit Mr. Newton for counsel. This is John Newton's church right there in the heart of London. St. Mary or not. That's his pulpit. Had the privilege of standing in that pulpit. <clears throat> you can stand in that pulpit if you visit his church. This is his church where he ministered for some 26 years. From 1780 to 1807, John Newton is buried beneath this church site. John Newton had great influence. He was a counsellor to William Carey. He was also a counsellor to William Wilberforce. After William Wilberforce became a Christian, he wasn't sure whether he should stay in politics. John Newton said to him, stay! Influence! Use your influence for God's glory. John Newton influenced William Carey, John Newton influenced William Wilberforce. John Newton was influential in Australia's first preacher. It was John Newton who recommended Richard Johnson to be the chaplain. And his friendship with Wilberforce, who was best mates with the Prime Minister at that time, was the means by which Richard Johnson came to Australia as our first preacher. Stems back to this man of God by the name of John Newton. This is just a little snapshot of the internals of the church. Now, because the church is right there in the heart of London, it's, there, is no, there are no services there. It's basically a museum, which is very sad. There's nobody lives right there in the very heart. It's all business. 
entrepreneurship. But this church stands as a monument of God's work. And John Newton was influential in counselling men of God like William Carey. Wilberforce attended his services, attended this church frequently, sat under his ministry. And this man of God was a wonderful influence and encouragement to the first preacher to Australia, Richard Johnson, wrote a poem in his honour, wrote to him, encouraged him to keep on keeping on. We have a spiritual debt that we owe to John Newton. This is a wonderful summary of his life within the church. It basically emphasises the fact that John Newton said, I was once an infidel, a slave trader, but I've been saved by the grace of God. And he gives God the glory for what God has done in his life. And, uh, and there that church lies within the heart of the city of London. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, in closing this evening, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I have mentioned some of God's choicest saints this evening. Men and even women of God that love God and sacrificed in order to honour God. They ran their race with patience. They were prepared to endure hardship. Each one that I've mentioned in some way endured a measure of hardship. But each one pressed on, did what God had called them to do, ran that race that was set before them. And now we think upon them. We remember them. I like to think we are inspired by them. And for you and I that are Bible-believing Christians in this nation of ours, we want to be thankful for these men and women of God because of what took place within the British Empire and what took place within that city of London, it's because of that the gospel has come to us. We should be thankful for that. And thank God for John Newton, Mr. Johnson, William Carey, David Livingstone. The list goes on and on and on. John Wycliffe, William Tyndale, ordinary people that took a stand for Jesus Christ in some way. And I'd like to challenge you this evening concerning the need for you and I to stand up for Jesus Christ. See, those individuals that are buried in Bunhill Fields Cemetery took a stand. They believed that because Christ was their king, that they didn't want to be identified with a mainline church. They took a stand. And may God help us to take a stand for Jesus Christ. May God help us to run that race that is set before us. 
Because as the Bible teaches, seeing that you are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And I've just given you some examples. Centering within the city of London. A city today of some nine million people. A lot of people. And yet the Christian history within that city is amazing. And if we have the opportunity, I'll walk you around to these places. And you can see it for yourself. May it inspire you to live for Jesus Christ wholeheartedly. Because as I meditate upon these individuals, I'm mindful that not one of them was superhuman. Not one of them was superhuman. They were simply sinners saved by the grace of God. And God gave them gifts and abilities. And they were willing to use their gifts and abilities for God's glory. And now their life testimony is there in history for you and I to read. To read their life testimony. Be inspired by their life testimony. The writing of church history continues to this very day. We are today creating church history. But the issue is what kind of church history? What kind of church history is your life creating, eventually put into print? May God help us to run that race with patience that he has set before us. Let's pray.